watchers in the fourth dimension. That is chair with a panther on it. Must have been delirious. Sheer poetry, dear boy. Now please stop bothering me. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And apart from that, young man, I'm quite willing to accept you at your face value. This episode, we're discussing the season finale of Doctor Who's second season, The Time Meddler. Looking behind the scenes here, we have a couple of new arrivals. Dennis Spooner has formally rolled off as story editor as of the end of The Chase. And this is Donald Tosh's first story officially in that role. I say officially since he had been working in tandem with Spooner for a few stories and Spooner would actually continue to kind of help him out for a little while longer. Donald Tosh had previously been story editor on the middle class soap opera Compact, but that was just about the extent of his story editing experience. After leaving Doctor Who, he goes on to become the script editor on the 1968 Sherlock Holmes series and then on a show called Ryan International. He'll also contribute to Doctor Who, writing for season three stories The Massacre and The Celestial Toymaker, kind of helping to fill in the gaps in those stories, some of which was credited, some of it was uncredited. It was also during this story that Verity Lambert's chosen successor, John Wiles, started trailing her to learn the ropes. By the end of the recording, he had effectively taken over from her in everything but name. He was introduced to the cast at a rehearsal, and by all accounts, Billy Hartnell was really unhappy at the amount of change going on. And during recording of this story, he did things like throw tantrums to try and intimidate both Wiles and Tosh. The legends of the difficult William Hartnell, well, this is where they come from. In front of the camera, we have Peter Purvis being officially unveiled as the new companion Stephen Taylor. While we did meet his character in The Chase, we don't find out that he's actually joined the crew until the beginning of this story. While he had played a couple of minor roles on TV before, this was Purvis's real first series regular role. He had, of course, go on to become more famous for presenting rather than acting, and he is well known for his stints on Blue Peter, The Crufts Dog Show, and Record Breakers. Having officially left his role as story editor, this serial was written by Dennis Spooner. He was chosen for this one due to the fluid nature of the show's cast at the time, and at the commissioning phase, nobody was really sure who would actually be in the show, so a writer was picked who was agile and knew the ins and outs of the show and could rapidly make changes to the script as required. In the director's chair, we have the return of Dougie Camfield. He had previously directed part of Planet of Giants and the entirety of The Crusade. In addition, Ian and Barbara's London scenes from The Chase were actually filmed as part of this story, so Camfield had a minor directorial role in that serial too. We have no composer being credited for incidental music, and stock music was used for this serial. In the designer's seat, we see the return of Barry Newbury, who had previously designed An Unearthly Child, Marco Polo, The Aztecs, and The Crusade. So he's clearly becoming quite the specialist on historical stories. And so after that rather extensive amount of behind-the-scenes information, the short summary this time round is with Don. Over to you, sir. The Doctor, Vicky, and new boy Stephen arrive in 1066 on the eve of the Viking invasion. The Doctor investigates a nearby monastery, encountering a DJing monk who imprisons him immediately. This is completely necessary for the story, and not just Billy Hartnell going on vacation again. Meanwhile, Vicky and Stephen meet the local villagers, one of whom doesn't trust them, thus costing them vital points for the serial from Julie once our rankings come around. 
Way to go, Eldred. <laughs> Shenanigans with exploring Viking and Sue, and the Doctor puts a stop to someone horning in on his usual MO. In this serial in which the Doctor encounters another of his people without there actually being Time Lords or Gallifrey yet. <laughs> and so with that, we move into our discussion of the first episode, The Watcher. We kind of pick up more or less where we left off from the chase. There's that really lovely discussion between the Doctor and Vicky and talking about missing them. Them obviously being Ian and Barbara here. And I just really, really loved that entire scene. It was so sweet. To me, I think that was the part of the serial that I enjoyed the most. Like we discussed last time, this actually kind of felt real from William Hartnell. Like you said in the production notes, he wasn't really happy with all the changes. He really wasn't. You know, the Doctor even talks about missing Susan. And while we have Maureen O'Brien, and I think behind the scenes over the next few serials, she becomes Hartnell's key ally. But I, I do think he's really speaking from the heart and also misses Carol Ann Ford here. But it's not long before we are introduced once again to our new companion. It's the stowaway, Stephen, with this little panda bear. What's everyone's first impressions on Stephen? I mean, I kind of like him. He's all right. He's he's not Ian I, I, or Barbara. <laughs> I think he works well with Vicky. If we take away how great Ian and, and Barbara were, I actually think their interactions between Vicky and Stephen is probably a little bit more fun than what Vicky had with Ian and Barbara. I agree. He's got the, the idby comments and all that, and they're kind of playing along with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely a different relationship. Oh, absolutely. And what I like about it is that since Vicky has been on the ship a little bit longer, she kind of has the upper hand on him. And he's the one who's like not believing in things. And she's like, oh, just wait, just wait. And so I, I actually find that rather fun, especially in that time period. What I found really interesting watching this, I mean, I had seen the time meddler before. Watching it now, I, I felt myself getting pulled into, unfortunately, uh, the dark side of Doctor Who fandom. And it's because we we love something so much that whenever it is leaves us and is replaced by someone else, we're immediately like immediately distrusting or, you know, just not approving of this new thing. And I don't know why, because I know that I never had a problem with Stephen before because I had seen all of Stephen's episodes. but. To me, like just all throughout watching, it's like, this isn't Ian. This isn't Barbara. <laughs> just the entire time. I don't know if that's just me or just a part of something that the show does to you when you watch it, that you get very defensive. I don't know. Thinking back on it, you know, we started this journey, what, 10 months ago? And we've had Ian and Barbara with us that entire time. So we've, we've said goodbye to the two key audience identification characters that we have spent a lot of time with. So I think that's understandable. I think it's understandable, but also with the nature of Doctor Who, it is about change. It's always going to break your heart. Yep. Tears will be shed. It'll be so sad, but we'll move on. It's okay. I do have one comment about Stephen, though. He Go really on. should have kept that beard. <laughs> I don't know uh. why he had to shave. <laughs> so I, I love it. He stows on board the TARDIS and he's discovered. And then his first thing he does is shave. So before we move into the outside of the TARDIS piece, there's that lovely speech that the Doctor has over Stephen's disbelief over the, the TARDIS. And he <laughs> talks about all the implements and, and says, sheer poetry, my dear boy. What he says afterwards is by the script, now please stop bothering me. 
But unfortunately, in the way it is filmed, sounds like, now please stop buggering me. <laughs> Which is a completely different meaning. I had not noticed obviously. that and kind of wish I hadn't mentioned it now. But... So um, there's that. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. I just thought it was funny when he was like, there's different parts of the ship. There's the doors. There's the chair. I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. And then you had to go and ruin it. Thanks. Sorry. I apologize. And, and dear listener, sorry if that's ruined this story for you as well. <laughs> anyway, so we eventually leave the TARDIS and start exploring this world, which Stephen obviously doesn't believe is 1066 because he's Stephen. And the doctor just goes and like walks into people's houses because, you know, he doesn't care. He owns the place. He gets some meat out of it. <laughs> I mean, he, he I mean, he does just from one conversation able to, you know, determine exactly when he is or when they are. And that was that was kind of nice to see him kind of like, you know, figure out that information and deduce that. That was that was enjoyable. Like I said, I don't think that for the serial, I don't think I think the setup works. I am just not too certain about our quote second act <laughs> to this uh, to this piece. It's a great concept. Yes, it's a very good premise. And I also, the actor who uh, plays the monk, I thought did a good job and it was a good foil toward William Hartnell's first doctor. Uh, when we get to the actual like nuts and bolts of our plot and our events through the story, that's when things kind of get kind of wiry. It feels stretched to me. Like this could have been two, maybe three episodes. But there's, it seems really padded. It, it, when you think about the premise, when you think about, sorry to jump to the ending here, the monk is a time meddler. What? <laughs> it's the title. What? It feels like, you know, maybe it's budgetary constraints. They already did the jump through time uh, previously with the, the Daleks just recently. But I feel like that kind of jumping around would have worked great with the time meddler. But I guess they already spent the budget doing that many different sets and shots. So they yeah. couldn't do it for this. See, what got me is it's initially structured as a mystery, which I like. I'm very cool with that. But there's two reveals of the same bit of information. You have Stephen and Vicky finding what the, the guy was like looking at something and it's a modern day watch. <gasps> Something's wrong here. And then you essentially have that same reveal when the doctor discovers the gramophone. Either one of those would yeah. have worked really well. But when you put them right next to each other, it's like, yeah, okay, we, we, we got it. There's something weird going on here. And frankly, the watch one should have been cut because I think the doctor's gramophone reveal is much cooler. Much cooler, especially with the, 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 uh, the monk chanting. Yes. That just it set, set the mood. It made it kind of abstract, kind of creepy. It's good. So one thing I did wonder on that was, you know, last story in the chase, we had the revelation of what the doctor assumed was the human mind being actually a, a carnival in Ghana in the future. I was kind of wondering if they were trying to set this up as another similar fake out. You know, this looks like 1066, but maybe it's another exhibition in kind of the style of Westworld. They're trying to say it's something, which I like. Like you yeah. said, I really like the mystery setup. But for that kind of reveal, you do it once and that's your your stinger kind of closing. And we don't really get that. You just sort of do it both with the same characters. It doesn't really work as well. I agree with you on the record player. I think the one thing I really like is we have just before Stephen and Vicky find the wristwatch, 
you hear the sound of the monk's chants, and then it, it skips a little bit, like a record would. So you've kind of got that set up for that. And I think, to your point, Don, that's why this just works so much better. And I think the wristwatch was unnecessary. Yeah, you've got set up, payoff, and then I think they're trying to have Vicky and Steven find out the information around the same time, but they don't really need to. But before we move on to the next episode, one thing I'm just curious about is, again, I wasn't educated in America, so I don't know what you guys learned, but are you all kind of familiar with the importance of 1066 to British history? I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, no, not at all. Most, at least with my experience, and I, not to brag, I took a few AP history classes. Um, oh, look at <laughs> you. You know, woohoo. So um, did I. Yeah, so, but I don't really recall anything of European history it, prior to the 20th century or 19th century, so. No. We're, we're Americans. We're mainly so, taught how to clean our guns and put mayonnaise on everything. And nothing really, <laughs> and nothing started till 1776. <laughs> That's right, baby. So unlike these heathens, while I didn't immediately pick up on it, the second like King Harold was brought up, I was like, oh, wait a second. I recognize that. So it it took me probably a little longer than maybe some of the British counterparts, but I, I, I did figure it out. So just for the benefit of anyone listening who's not familiar, we tend to think as, of 1066 as a major turning point in English history. At the time, England was under Saxon rule, and King Harold was on the throne tenuously, having succeeded from Edward the Confessor. Edward had also promised the, fr the throne to William the Bastard of Normandy, also known as William the Conqueror, and Harold took it. William wasn't too happy. Harold had a, an incoming threat from the north of Harold Hardraga, from, who was a Viking, and he took his army up north, defeated the Vikings, but then had to rush down south almost immediately to go and fight off the invasion of William the Conqueror, which he then lost. So that's really the historical setting of this story. With that, you had the, the Norman dynasty that, bluntly, every single monarch since William the Conqueror, right to Elizabeth II this day, is descended from William. Cool? All right, episode two, The Meddling Monk. I have a very important question at the very beginning of this. So, so the monk has a toaster, right? Where does he get the electricity in order to run the toaster? He's running a cable into his TARDIS. Was it? I'm going with yes. That's my explanation because I asked myself the <clears> same <throat> question. That's the only <laughs> way. That's the only way. When Stephen and Vicky find his TARDIS in, in episode three, they, they do find a cable running out of it. So I, it's probably safe to assume that's what cable is doing, is running all of his appliances. <sighs> Fine. There had to be like a smart excuse. <laughs> I wanted something fun! <sighs> so, this story was almost entirely studio-bound, and we get a lot of stock footage. We actually almost start with stock footage in this episode, and I think the way Camfield blends the two actually works really, really well. We've seen some tenuous cuts in the past, but I think here, he's done a great job with it. I think you're referring to like the cuts of like the uh, the Viking ship. Yeah, it, it went. It went. Yeah, it went pretty smooth. It went pretty smooth. There, there has been worse. In general, what do we all think of just the interaction between the Saxons and their distrust of almost everyone, and yet 
equally, you know, you've got this monk character who they don't know, but they just assume he's a man of God and that's all kosher. I didn't think they were all necessarily that distrustful. It just seemed like that one guy, Eldred, I think his name was. No matter what native population they deal with, there's always one. Yeah, because the other the other Saxon just seemed like eh, they they seem pretty okay, and Edith obviously was like, yeah, let them do whatever they want. But it was that one guy, Eldred. Wasn't Eldred always like his his theory was like they were like Viking spies? Now, like I said, I've already commented I'm not a, not very well read on history prior to the 19th century. I'm not really familiar or well known of Vikings being very subtle. Or being very like, you know, using espionage for their their conquering. They're usually kind of more of a brute force kind of folks, right? And that's that's what I remember. Yeah, they come in, they they destroy some shit, they rape, they pillage. That's just what Vikings do. They chant yeah, spam they... a lot, and then they move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and kind of what they they set up where they had like those two Viking like uh not not spies, but the the scouts. two that like scouts, yes. So, like, the scouts make sense that they would go up, scout, and do that kind of thing. But the actual spying bit, yeah, that doesn't... I love how stereotypical the, the names of the scouts are. I mean, they're called, like... Ulf and Sven! Ulf and Sven! Ulf and Sven! One of the village guys has the best name ever. Walnoth! <laughs> Come on! That's amazing. Uh, I will call my firstborn Walnoth. As well maybe. you should. <laughs> there there were a few times, especially like towards the end of the episode when there's like the they're having that like little skirmish, I think it was. I come sometimes struggled recognizing who is a Viking and who is a Saxon. See, that was one of my main problems with these four episodes. Despite that little skirmish, there's just not enough Saxon violence in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um so as Stephen and Vicky are leaving, the, the Saxons turn round and say, God be with you. And did anyone else pick up on Stephen hesitating before he says it back to them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was an interesting choice. I think, to me, that's a deliberate intent from the production team to kind of say, well, this guy's from the future. We've obviously moved past religion by his time. I would agree with that. Yeah, I agree completely. And that's always been a very interesting subject matter uh, for, you know, a more conservative time, 1960s sci-fi, to discuss this concept of, like, even reaching upon the idea of, like, religion. It's always something that Roddenberry had to deal with with, you know, early Star Trek. And it was very interesting to see Doctor Who, like, you know, just, just you know, poke just, just slightly, just brush past that idea a little bit, just play with it. Yeah. Yeah, and I... Because, like, the general you know, viewers aren't going to notice that, I don't think. Now, the other thing on this episode is I feel like we don't get a huge amount of the monk, but what we do get is quality. We see him on the cliffs trying to do snuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and his first attempt gets blown away by the wind, which I thought was a magnificent comedy beat. That's what I like about his character in that he has some elements that we have seen and will see in later Doctors. It's just what he's trying to do is not very doctorly. And I like that. He's a fun character. And that's, you know, I think something we, we see a lot of in this story. He's not an outright opposite to the Doctor in the way that the Master will be once we get there. He's not 
the Moriarty to Holmes. He's the comedy version of the Doctor who just wants to move things along a little faster. He's not trying to conquer things. He's not He's not a bad guy. He's just having fun in his own weird way. Well, yeah, it's like, yeah, it, you're right. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not your prototypical evil villain at all. He's this sense of like a, uh, to use the title, he's a meddler. He's a person that like just kind of, like almost like a gremlin. Like he messes things up. He's not necessarily trying to do it out of bad faith or for bad intentions. He really just maybe does it for maybe slightly selfish reasons, but not too much. And he's trying to just help things along or do things that he thinks are right. But because of that, and because he's not entirely competent, which is alluded to in that scene that you just mentioned about the snuff, he, he's 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 a problem. He's a real danger. See, I'm not sure if he does things because he thinks they're right, but because he doesn't think they're mm-hmm. necessarily wrong. So this is something that Sandifer talks about. Take a drink at home, guys. What she says is where the doctor delights in turning out to be the reason that history happened the way we know it does. The monk is chaotically rewriting history, but he's put on the same level as the doctor. He's not a villain per se. He's just a variation on the character that we like and trust, which I think was a good way of looking at it. It's, it's like the D&D alignment chart. The, the, the monk is uh, chaotic neutral, maybe. And the doctor, where would you put the doctor right now? Ooh. I would say neutral good. Maybe chaotic good. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't know. I don't know that I'd put him at chaotic yet. I don't think this current doctor, because he's very hesitant on changing things, so I wouldn't really call him too chaotic. That's fair, I think yeah. there's. I would like to talk about Vicky during this episode. So, because at the beginning, when her and Steven, I think they just wake up, and Vicky's very, I, I called it hyper aware. So, like, she wakes up and she immediately is, a, is like, something's not right and you know she's trying to kind of figure things out and you know she's like something's something's wrong and you know steven doesn't really listen and so you know always listen to vicky because she knows what's happening and then when they're with the saxons and vicky just gets so frustrated that they just can't make up their minds and so she like starts yelling at them and she's just like just just make (laughs) up your minds do one it's like either kill us or let us go just just let's not stand here anymore. And I just really liked that. <laughs> and she is, of course, the one who realizes that the monk, when they talk to him, that what he's saying is not what it seems. Mm-hmm. So she knows that the monk is playing along with them. That said, if you're discussing your clever plan to outwit someone, you might not want to do it at full volume right outside the door where they're probably listening. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I think we're starting to get towards the end of this episode. We have the Viking attack on the village. What doesn't work for me in this story is it's not explicitly stated, but the implication is that Edith gets raped. Yeah. Yeah. That could have been done better. I mean, I see why they did it, because it's what Vikings do. But tonally, like, there are some really good comedy beats in this story, and that is just horrific even by attempting at at some point to take it seriously it still feels so brushed off yeah that's what that was so like disturbing to me i was like okay you've implied this but apparently like we haven't even taken any time to even like really discuss it or delve into it we're merely just brushing past it like okay all right move it on it's very awkward i think yeah they could have 
done any other thing. Like, really, if they had just gone down the route of, you know, she just got injured, that would have worked a lot better. (laughs) To me, I I don't know how everyone feels about this, but I feel like the the Saxons versus the Vikings is like the actual, you know, those characters, anytime they're involved, is the weakest part of the entire serial. That's true. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But they do kind of coincide with one of my favorite parts of this actual Battle of Wits episode, which is where the monk is doing his monk things and just wants to be <laughs> left alone, but people continuously keep showing up to bother him and interrupt what he's doing. <laughs> and that's just wonderful comedy right there. Yeah. So that really does bridge over into, as you say, Don, a battle of wits, the next episode. So moving on into that, the bridge here is, you know, obviously Billy Hartnell's been off on his holiday for a week and we've had Vicky and Stephen break in the mon- into the monastery to try and find him. And then he's not where he should be. Maybe I had something in my ears, this story, but when they find his cloak in the cell, I misheard one of them say that he'd left his clothes behind. <laughs> that's, that's... They actually said it was his cloak, but I, for, for a minute I had this, and, and I've seen this story before, so I, I knew this wasn't the case, but I had this image of the Doctor wandering around completely starkers. <laughs> I think you might need to get your ears checked because you're going off the deep end here. Maybe. So the battle of wits is that the doctor was able to discover a secret door within the cell. The worst cell ever, and apparently the only cell they have in this place. Which is not really more of a battle of wits, more of a battle of observation. (laughs) I would would argue. Like, you know, when you see that title, you get really excited about, like, we already referenced it earlier because we're dealing with an adversarial relationship, a, a nemesis kind of thing of, you know, a... Sherlock vs. Moriarty thing, and you're expecting something like, oh, wow, he's going to do something really brilliant. It's just like, oh, he just found this door over here in the corner that he didn't know, even though the monk had been here for, we're assuming, at least a couple months. It's not really a battle. It's not really a skirmish. It's a mild disagreement (laughs) of... (laughs) And and I saw the, the actual battle of what's to be later in the episode. I didn't really think of the beginning as even starting that. Yeah, so I that's... looked at it a little bit differently. I looked at it as when the doctor gets back. That right. The you mean towards the, yeah, starts. you're right. Toward the end of the yeah. episode when they actually start having like really direct dialogue instead of the doctor being captured and immediately and put into the cell. Yeah. I do love that the person the doctor immediately goes to see once he's escaped is Edith. It's a second wife. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I'll ship them. I like them. <laughs> Edith is great. Edith was so. also in the very first serial. She was her in the caveman episodes yeah yeah so we've got her back Uh. don you you might be glad to hear i I think this is the last time she ever appears in the show if that's going to be your reaction (laughs) that's my reaction to that (laughs) pun (laughs) sorry (laughs) i wholly apologize can we talk about the monk's plan in large font Oh, with the check marks. <laughs> I, oh my love, gosh, I love. I wish that. every Doctor Who I villain love that did he has that. a chart. Just my evil plan. <laughs> <laughs> and it was all in such big capital letters. I was kind of wondering if he was, you know, maybe a school teacher in a previous life. I'm very sad though that it wasn't a little bit more detailed. Like maybe have dates associated with those. You know, like 
by such and such date, this needs to have been accomplished would have been fun. That's how I do lists. I I think they should have gone really crazy. They should have like, you know, when they were listing out the things like Leonardo da Vinci and da 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 da, they should have gone really wild with it and like said, 2,200 so-and-so so-and-so develops interstellar travel or something like that. Like just really just throwing something out there that would have been like, you know, just kind of fun, like something in the not too distant future. I'm just disappointed he hadn't built a Gantt chart. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I kind of thought they did a pretty decent job of in this story, though, was that it was a good blend of of history without getting too involved in the big events. So while this is kind of around, you know, William the Conqueror and, you know, that's a very big year in history. It was so like so far removed that I think that it was, you know, it's like you got to learn some of that history and you kind of see where it fit in, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like in, in the Romans when it's like, Oh, we actually got Nero to do this thing for us. Yeah. It didn't hit you over the head. So like, yeah, I thought that they actually did a pretty good job in this one uh, with the history bit. I think the closest we get is where the doctor starts piecing things together. And he has that little monologue to the camera where he gives a little bit of a history lesson in this episode. Yeah. And that's the closest we get to having it really rammed home. So we talked about the doctor. We've talked about the monk. What about when the doctor comes back to the monk? I know we've kind of touched on it, but they, the dynamic there is really cool, I think. Oh, yeah. And the doctor looks great in his monk's robe. One, the doctor is threatening him with a stick. Yes. That he claims is a shotgun. A Winchester 73 right in the middle of your spinal cord. <laughs> I mean, the doctor is a badass. He's not, he's not afraid at all to like pop at all. He's, he's ready to go. There, there's your alt American doctor, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> in his case, it would be a shotgun. <laughs> But yeah, like I thought that I I really like them kind of having that back and forth and it was going really, really, really well. And then the Vikings had to get in the way. Yeah, yeah. The Doctor usually has so much of a curiosity when it comes to uh, intelligences uh, challenging him. This time, going back to the monk, after being captured the first time off of the, uh, the record trick with the monk chants, he actually does seem a bit pissed off you know with him like it's like i can't believe that you it's like some jerk from your high school just showing up where you are and and messing with your with your thing he doesn't care about this guy he's just annoyed like back off this is this is yeah it's like he has no he has no either he has no respect for him that or he's just really angry that he got he got got so to speak in <laughs> I'm, I'm going with he has no respect for the guy because let's be honest the monk is very bad at pretending to be a monk that's yeah. true yeah he's real bad at it kind of he's feel bad bad for the doctor i mean it's it's been that kind of pattern people associate with classic docs who have capture escape capture escape you know he's just back in a jail cell here but what i did like was you kind of expect him to use the same escape passage to escape but (laughs) instead he pulls a little trick on the viking which i didn't the first time i saw this i didn't see that coming that was great and he gives a little i was i didn't think you were gonna come in that kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) just awesome at the same time we have the monk 
going to the Saxons and telling them to like beacon fires. And suddenly his his plan is starting to fall down because people are starting to figure him out. Well, it's supposed to be a, a monastery and there's one monk that they've seen. <laughs> one guy. I mean, that's a problem. I mean, there were briefly two, if you include the Doctor. So we end the episode with what I think is honestly my favourite cliffhanger so far in the show, which is Stephen and Vicky. Like, can you imagine watching this for the first time in 1965? You have never seen, aside from Susan, another member of the Doctor's race, and then suddenly the monk's got a TARDIS. That's pretty damn cool. It's strong. Mm -hmm. It's very strong. It's very strong. And again, we kind of mentioned that they were running low on budget and it's very convenient that they can uh, use the same set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, it, it, it is actually really good. I, I really enjoyed that because I, I didn't really see it coming. So yeah, that was really cool. Don, I know this is your first time with this story as well. Did you kind of know that was coming or suspect? I suspected it based on the very first episode, which is rather convenient because the monk just happens to be standing there just to see the TARDIS arrive. And just mm. his action in terms of listening, and also they gave the setup of the chameleon circuit, although it wasn't called that. But they mentioned that in great detail. I'm like, okay, something's coming up here. So it was a great reveal, but it wasn't too much of a surprise. Well, cool. That brings us into episode four, Checkmate. Which I have a question. I, we've already discussed British history. I'm a little confused. So why did the monk feel so passionate about King Harold? Is there, like, can you give me an explanation as to, like, is that something that's logical? Does that imply him being ignorant or or foolish or is there like he actually has a decent like belief there or i mean I, i'm not familiar so the logical part is that if he didn't have to go up north and fight the vikings he would have won the battle of hastings in the south because they literally were as soon as he won his entire army had to march down to hastings to try and fend off william so that kind of makes sense but this idea that progress would have been accelerated i'm not really buying that i think that's somewhat fanciful because it sounded like he also said that ultimately that would have meant that they could have actually wiped out the vikings so if they had gone for william first then you know we can kind of do something about that which also doesn't make any sense it's kind of one of those things where william conquering england was a turning point in history so i don't know why he was so focused on like progress would have been accelerated yeah. whereas for me, it would have been for me, it would have been like it would have just changed everything. We don't know how, but it would have changed everything. And I think what this doesn't really emphasize is is really the impact that the Norman invasion had. I mean, it, it was a whole scale invasion and conquest. You know, the Anglo-Saxon people were either displaced or they married into or they interbred with the Normans. So when they talk about Shakespeare putting his plays on TV, well, there might not have been a Shakespeare. You know, I know that on one side of my family, for sure, I have Norman ancestry. So if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't be here. And I think the statistic is something like 25% of the people in the British Isles today are descended directly from William the Conqueror. 
So there's an entire possibility that without the Norman invasion, we might not even have Shakespeare. So I, I think there's a bit of a fallacy going on here in at least Dennis Spooner's logic. I mean, the setting works for mood and for the contrast of high technology to a medieval time period. But for a plot, it doesn't really work. It makes sense because it's something that would be very important, as Anthony said earlier, to like an English audience watching this. Be like, oh, this is a very important part of our history. But plot-wise, it de- doesn't seem to work for me. Yeah, because like if his if his concern was progress, or even if it was something along the lines of you know fewer lives lost, or or some anything to that kind of respect, there are definitely other points in history where that would make much more sense. Thinking of one of the world wars when you have you know millions upon millions of people dying. I feel like progress could have been more accelerated by preventing those as opposed to that. I, I, I could be wrong. Well, I mean, for I motives know. for the monk, when I think about this story from a modern sense, I think what would have been what would be much more terrifying and more applicable in our modern sense for this story would be the monk is going back in time and doing these meddling in time just for the just for the lulls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, I'm saying that as a joke, and I say that as like as terrifyingly serious. Like, I mean, in an internet culture that provides things that are people do things that are really terrible for jokes. I mean, that is a very dramatic plotline for a Doctor Who idea. And the time meddler here, it's like he's just confused as to what he thinks would be good for history, which is still could be very dramatic and you know strong, but Maybe he could have picked something like you said, something that would have been more damaging to what you know what we look back as history. What would have been more you know chaotic, more more of a problem than what he picked. I agree. I do think one thing that is actually particularly interesting here is the monk's entire modus operandi is just to change history, and we are now a long way away from the Aztecs, where we had. You can't change history, not one line. Well, you can. And this is a year, year and a half later. The show has changed its outlook as the production team has changed. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't know how successful they would have been if you're saying that, you know, kind of they're changing their tune. Because have we actually proven that things can change? Because ultimately, the monk's plan didn't work. And the only clues that we have that he's done anything else was from his diaries which he could have very well have lied about about the da vinci and stonehenge and all of that so while we're kind of moving in that direction of saying oh maybe we can change it i've yet to see proof that we change it i think what is the big difference here is whereas the doctor was certain about it with barbara here he's not so sure he's worried enough to feel the need to come in and thwart the monk So I think we're seeing a difference in at least the train of thought, even if ultimately we have history staying on the same track. Okay. Okay. I'll buy it just one time. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I mean, I think at this point we, we should discuss how the doctor deals with the monk. And I have some strong opinions about it. And I am, 
I think that this is a kind of a real ethical question here. Yes. About what the doctor yes. did. You're not wrong. Thank you. I, I to to uh, get my nerd card stamped for approval. It was very similar to Star Trek II, uh, the argument that Khan gave, and that basically the doctor has marooned this person who has a TARDIS, who has obviously is more advanced than the time that they are in, and has left them completely abandoned, alone, also on incredibly bad terms of the local population. <laughs> To be fair, if you'll recall what he did much, much later in Family of Blood and Human Nature, he practically did the monk of kindness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do bring up an interesting point because the way they played it, it didn't seem as bad because, you know, it's like, one, you had that awesome thing when, you know, he's messing with something, Stephen and Vicky are trying to figure it out, you know, keep your nose away, Vicky, literally. And all of that, which was a very fun scene because you're like, oh, man, the doctor's doing his thing and his like companions are kind of distracting him and it's great. And then you sit there and you think what he actually did and you're like, well, um, that's kind of terrible. He said he would come back and we know the doctor always keeps his promises to come back. <laughs> he can't he can't fly the TARDIS well. How is he supposed to come back? Minor spoiler for everyone, we do see the monk again after this. I mean, I'm not terribly surprised, but yes, we'll see. Okay, so we see him again. Okay, sure, fine. But when you think about that, he marooned him someplace with a not working TARDIS. It is a cruel thing. It's not just that, but it's also the fact that he still has the ability to meddle in this time. So not only has he marooned him, but he's still got all that advanced knowledge and could still potentially damage the timeline. I think he does still have what was called an atomic cannon. The hill. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the uh, the ammunition for it was in the TARDIS. Oh, that's well, I don't know. Maybe you can like reach in there really carefully. <laughs> <laughs> for a little tiny, like tiny. one inch cannon. It's atomic. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think in general, I'm I'm in agreement that it's it's somewhat irresponsible and 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 at worst it's outright cruel. But hey, this is a villain. That more or less brings us to the end of the story. We uh we see the TARDIS crew depart and we get the weird the faces, faces over the starfield <laughs> as the credits roll. So at the end of last season, we had that wonderful "Our destiny is in the stars." speech which this could have been reminiscent of that but no instead we just get no. faces over a star field it's almost like a trial run for what they're gonna do later on in the intros isn't it oh yeah <laughs> that sounds thrilling thanks give us, guys give us another two years on that Don. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the story so that brings us on to our metrics We've had the departures of Ian and Barbara, so we no longer have the murder count, which leaves us with the camp count and the Vicky pet name count. Do we have any nominations for the camp count? I don't think so. Yeah. And the Vicky pet name count, well, she doesn't encounter any adorable alien creatures, so that's a big fat zero as well. 
I was writing down I was writing down all the the episodes because I was going to recommend that we maybe change hers to just the you should have li- listened to Vicky count. Ooh, that's actually that's you know that's that makes sense. So do we do we have something from this story that you should have listened to Vicky? Uh, yeah. So in the um second episode uh when uh she was uh, when they like woke up in the in the forest and like she was she kind of knew that the saxons were around but she couldn't quite really tell and steven was just like ah eh, it's fine okay steven should have listened to vicky okay so the you should have listened to vicky count one yes. Next time round, we will actually do our, our season totals on the metrics. And so with that, we move on to our vote. So I get to kick it off this week. I enjoyed this story. It's not one of the best, and it certainly has its flaws. But I really felt like the, the latter two episodes were really, really enjoyable. It took a while to get moving. I think Stephen is, while he's not Ian and Barbara, he's a good addition to the crew. This is by no means for me the worst episode of the the worst story of the season, and I think because of the additions to the lore as well as the pacing of those final two episodes, as I already mentioned, I'm going to give this seven space helmets for a cow out of ten. <laughs> Don, over to you. I think I'm very much with you on this story. A lot of it is kind of slow, a little padded, and unnecessary. But it does add a lot to the lore. We also get that really touching conversation about Ian and Barbara in the beginning. You get oh yeah, the doctor when he is in it has some really fun interactions with both Stephen and the monk, and all that's good. I'm gonna be the same. I'm gonna give it seven obvious fake beards out of ten. <laughs> Julie, over to you. Like you, I enjoyed a good bit of it. Uh, Vicky was pretty good. Uh, the doctor was really good and some things like that. My my biggest complaints were, as Don so, you know, wonderfully put it in our summary, that yes, one of the things I will deduct from this is the stereotypical oh, hey, there's one nice guy, but then the other one is like, well, no, I don't trust them. We should kill them. That trope I'm done with. Uh, And then the piece with Edith, not very well thought out and done, although she had some really great moments in other episodes. So that kind of a little bit makes up for it. So with that, I will give it... I will say that it is the, you know, Mach 6.5 TARDIS. <laughs> and Riley. Our lead-in is great. Stephen introduction is pretty good. It kind of sets our, you know, dynamics with uh, both Vicky and the Doctor. Like I said, the, the premise to this story is wonderful. It's really, really great. It's the, f- it's the first time where the Doctor is really dealing with someone that can like see things from see things from his perspective because of the ability to time travel but it feels bogged down uh really does i know like i said i don't maybe i don't have an appreciation for english history enough to understand the importance of it or maybe the monk needed to be more evil or maybe the monk needed to have shown things in the history when he was talking about his what he had done things that were went really really bad and 
Earth's history to, for us to understand how the stakes are so high. And so it just kind of fell flat with that. While I appreciate all of that, I, it, it just didn't do much for me. Like I said, great premise, though. So I will give it uh, 6.5 dimensional controls out of 10. Marvelous. And so that gives us a story average of 6.75. And so with that, that's about all we have time for in this episode. We'll be back next time round with our season roundup. In the meantime, our previous episodes are all available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. And you can even email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Needs More Saxon Violence, was recorded on Wednesday the 7th of August 2019. And always remember, when making your nefarious plans, comedically sized lists are an absolute necessity. You will fail without one.